Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Rick Silvala, the co-founder and CEO of Harvest Volatility Management, a 10-year-old manager of a variety of volatility strategies that oversees $13 billion in assets. After starting his career in the Treasury Department at General Motors in the mid-1980s, Rick has spent nearly three decades trading derivatives on the sell side and buy side. He has an uncanny ability to break down this complicated investment area and make it sound simple. Our conversation discusses the world of volatility, 
including intelligent uses of derivatives, overcoming headline risk, characteristics of successful traders, assessment of alpha, the current volatility environment, and strategies that capture returns. Rick's insights left me thinking twice about some of the assumptions my System 1 brain had formed about volatility. Time for System 2 to go to work. Before we turn to the conversation, I have a favor to ask. For over a decade, I've participated in a fundraiser for rare cancer research called Cycle for Survival. Cycle got started by a classmate of mine from business school, the late, great Jennifer Goodman Lynn, and her husband and also classmate, Dave Lynn. It started in a single Equinox gym in New York City back in 2007 and has grown to a national movement that has raised $160 million and funded over 100 clinical trials at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. I've received a number of welcome inquiries from old friends offering to pay for a subscription to Capital Allocators and from new friends thanking me for making these educational conversations for free. For those inclined, now's the time to return the favor. I'm writing at a cycle event in my hometown on March 4th, and I'd like to encourage you to donate if you're so inclined. You can visit cycleforsurvival.org, that's cycleforsurvival.org, and search for my name as a participant or my team name, Tough as Nails. You can also check out the show notes of this episode for a direct link to my participant page. I greatly appreciate your support in joining the battle to fight rare cancers. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Rick Silvala. Rick, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Ted. I don't know that people go to high school and college thinking they're going to become volatility traders or derivatives traders. So why don't you start by taking me through your path to harvest? I clearly did not do that either. Growing up in Detroit, I was a third-generation GM guy, person. So, you know, my goal was to go to Michigan and get a degree in mechanical engineering. I was lucky enough, once I joined GM, they sent me to Harvard Business School. And I ended up at the New York Treasurer's Office in New York. So that was the first time sort of financial markets became part of my daily routine. And from a career perspective, it, it really was exciting. So I switched from wanting to one day run an auto company to wanting to be involved with Wall Street. And that sort of evolved from there. So all of a sudden, you know, you're dealing with currency exposures and interest rate exposures. At that point, banks start to talk to you about, hey, would you ever think about coming to the other side? When they see someone who understands what corporations need and are looking for, and, and if you have a temperament that's, that's good at explaining complex things and making them understandable and, and helping to sort of solve problems. So that sort of happened in the early-ish 90s and start off in the currency derivative area, which was a lot of fun. And then once the euro came, it became a little less interesting, um, a lot fewer currency pairs. And I made the switch in the late 90s from the equity, excuse me, currency derivative side over to the equity derivative side. And that was an exciting time because markets were booming and then all of a sudden markets weren't booming. But that's really how that sort of came about. And um, there was a point in time when after being on the sell side and every year you know you're trying to figure out how are you going to make budget and how are we going to you know what trade is going to allow us to sort of you know survive this year and get in at this point I was at Credit Suisse and Credit Suisse acquired this boutique called Valaris 
I moved into that boutique because I liked the idea of taking this derivative transactional business and making it more of an asset management business. And then about 10 years ago, left to launch Harvest, and that's where we are. How should someone think about volatility as an asset class or as something to invest in? We sort of think about volatility as a way to do three basic things. One is to add yield, and uh, two would be to reduce risk, and three would be to add leverage. And you know, when you think about the you know adding yield part, the most common sort of approach, sort of options 101, if you will, is you know writing covered calls. And so if you own a stock that's trading at 100 and you're willing to sell it at 105 and you sell a call at 105 and you get paid, the idea is, you know, might as well get paid while you wait for the stock to get to the price that you want to sell it anyway. If it doesn't get there, you keep the premium and you can do it again and you can do it again. And so it's a low-risk-ish way to use options because you can't lose on both. If the stock drops, you win on the option side. If the stock rises too far, you might lose on the option side. You might win on both if the stock goes up only a small amount, and that's what you're really what you're banking on. Obviously, you sell a covered call. It's not a hedge. It's not protection, but it is additional income, which can you know, help dampen things a little bit. But that is sort of the basic use of options. And then the second most common, clearly, is buying protection. And so if you are long the market and either you're nervous about an eventual correction or you would be adversely impacted by you know, a big downward move. Very common for people to buy puts on certain stocks or on the market, sort of like insurance on your house. And the idea there, obviously, is you will probably pay a little, pay a little, pay a little, and no one, you know, we all pay for insurance on our homes. None of us want that insurance to ever cash in. We don't want our home to get taken out. But that's sort of part two, which is using options to reduce risk. The third, of course, is leverage, and that's in certain cases, someone might be long or you know have a balanced portfolio, and they might just you know either buy calls on on a certain sort of bet or buy puts on a certain downward bet, and it's just a way to sort of try to turbo boost things. Like anything, options are tools, and analogous to pharmaceuticals, when you know how to use them and you follow the prescription and you work with the experts, they can be wonderful things. When any of those things don't happen, they can be bad things. <laughs> so let's dive in a little bit on each of those. So in the first case, covered calls, we've been in a muted vol environment. And I would think, yeah, okay, there's a dividend yield on the stock. You're probably not getting paid that much on the covered call. So as you've talked to people about it, and over the years, how do people think about sort of what's the right price that the yield makes sense? It's a great question. It really is. It's two-part. You know, part of it is how much appreciation in the stock that you want to retain versus how much income you want to generate from the option premium. I would say that the less bullish you are on your stock, you're not necessarily bearish. You're not looking to sell it. Maybe you have a very low basis, but maybe it's, it's going to be stuck in the, you know, in neutral for three to six months. In that case, someone might get a more aggressive and sell a call option that's closer to spot and be able to add a lot more premium. 
In those cases, you know, again, it all depends on the price of the stock. It depends on the volatility of the stock. It depends on the time to maturity, all of those things, and whether you're rolling or, or not. But, you know, generally speaking, you know, I, I think you can adding two to three percent, sort of doubling the yield is, is a reasonable expectation. If you're trying to do more than that, either you're selling calls on a really volatile stock, which in effect is giving you a synthetic short put position. But I think if adding two to three percent sounds reasonable, then you can sell options that are, you know, sort of 25-ish delta, which is another way of saying, you know, three out of four times they will expire worthless. One out of four times they will, you know, be in the money, which means you either write a check for the difference or you buy it back and sell a new call, you know, at higher strikes. You know, a big part of it is, is, you know, what is the, the investor's stock holding? What's their view on the stock? And it's as much about where the stock is as vol levels. And I'll just give you one last example. You generally like to sell calls on a stock when its price is high and volatility is high. And by definition, those two don't usually happen at the same time. Usually, when a stock has made you know a nice run, volatility tends to decline. There's less you know fear. And conversely, when volatility spikes in stock, it's usually because you know the stock has just collapsed. And so. After a stock has collapsed, the good news is vol is higher, but the bad news is, is now you're writing a strike that's well below where it was yesterday. But on the other side is, is if a stock you know you know gaps up to new all time highs and you're okay selling three to five percent above that level, you're probably going to get a little less from a vol side. So the bliss answer is somewhere in between, where stock is sort of range trading. It's sort of in a pattern that makes sense and is likely to be there for for a prolonged-ish period, you can sell calls on the on the highs with volatility still at you know reasonable levels. And is there for someone in the know, if you were looking at a systematic program of selling, is there a rule of thumb about sort of the optimal way because of the term structure of volatility? Is this like if you want to do it, you should just do it on a monthly roll basis and keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it? Or should you go out six months? Or, or is there just a general rule of thumb? It's tough to have you know, one solution for all markets. What I would say is that because of time decay, selling shorter dated options you know, is a way to maximize that decay. However, that requires more work and more attention, um, and it will lead to more execution costs, and it will lead to you know, option strikes that are closer to spot and so if you don't want to get your stock called away, it's, you know, it's going to require much more hand-holding and attention. The flip side is you could, you could make it really simple and just go out one year. But when you go out a year, A, the vol that you're getting is usually pretty dampened, and, and, and so that's not beneficial. The time decay doesn't really kick in until three months and in, and so that doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, and markets can move and change so much in a year. So... I personally think sort of that one to three month window, you know, is really the optimal and depending on, you know, and if, if you think the stock's at a higher level um, and vol is attractive, you might want to punch it out three months. Um, and if you want to have the ability to roll strikes higher, et cetera, you might keep it in a little shorter dated. But that's where experience and expertise and, and understanding 
the curve and where opportunities are on the curve really comes into play. So I want to move on to this fascinating topic of options as insurance. And we read a lot in the papers now about people or NETF getting blown up because of short vol. I want to frame this as saying, is the derivatives market, let's just say equity derivatives to keep it simple, does it work like insurance? So yes, insurance companies sell insurance. And if you own a house and something happens, you get paid a lot of money. People worry, and certainly in the institutional space, you don't hear people saying, oh, yeah, we want to we sell puts because everyone has this you know, death, deathly afraid of the event happening or certainly naked puts. But is that wrong? I mean, if, if you looked at it, does it work like insurance? Is there a premium that you can capture by selling volatility? The short answer is yes, and your insurance analogy is, is perfect, frankly. Options provide a risk transference mechanism like insurance, and buyers of insurance over time typically overbuy, but they sleep well at night. And sellers of insurance make a lot of money, but they better know how to manage their risk. And so, you know, that's the, that's the short of it, and you can see it you know, numerically by looking at the spread of implied volatility over realized volatility. And since the 87 crash, it's been pretty persistent in that, you know, three to four percent range. And so, so that implied is trades higher, higher than realized with consistency. With with consistency. Obviously, there will be spikes in time where, you know, realized will jump through, but they don't last very long and they come back. And so there is that and then when you get to puts in particular, there's also this thing called skew, you know, which is effectively a, a measure of the relative demand for downside protection versus upside participation. And as we all know, the markets tend to take the stairs up and uh, the elevator down. Um, sometimes the elevator cord even gets cut <laughs> on the way down. But um, no, as such, if I'll just give a simple example, if stocks at 100, and if the VIX, which long-term average is about 20, so if the VIX is at 20, one might think that, okay, if stock's at 100, let's say a 110 call and a 90 put, both 10 points away from spot, should both be at about a 20 vol. And the answer is that that 110 call vol is probably closer to 15, and that you know 90 put vol is probably more like 25. So VIX is the weighted average of all the strikes, Calls and puts, etc. It's sort of like a you know a duration number versus you know the six month T bill versus a thirty year bond. Let's move on to the third category, leverage, which is so synonymous with risk when people think about derivatives. Where do people trip themselves up? I would say when when someone gets overly complacent, thinking that oh, this certain outcome could never happen, but not thinking about what if it did happen and what would be the impact. So I think that generally if you buy a call or if you buy an option, the good news is is your risk is limited to whatever premium you paid. So it's a, it's a way of, of taking a measured amount of risk to have an asymmetric potential outcome. You can pay a dollar for an option and maybe make three or four. However, the, the odds are pretty good that you're going to lose the dollar. And so it's a good news, bad news. My risk is limited, but my potential to lose all that is pretty high. But that's on the, on the buying. You know, no one's ever been really hurt. Well, let me, let me rephrase that. 
you're less likely to be hurt buying an option. You might bleed to death over a long period of time, but you're not going to be you know taken out tomorrow on a stretcher if you're you know buying options. Conversely, when you sell an option, you get paid, and even if you're wrong, you can win. Meaning, you know, you think the market's topish. You sell a call that's out of the money. The market still goes up, but it doesn't go up far enough to get to reach your call strike. And guess what? You get to, you still get to keep the premium. Or you think the market's bottomed, and you sell a put, and the market still goes down, but it doesn't go far enough. The problem is, is and while you receive upfront, your maximum gain is known, and that's the premium you receive. Your maximum loss can be infinity on a call side, and can can be all the way to spotless zero on the, on the put side. So I think where people really get hurt is when A, they're, they're, they're short vol and B, they don't have guardrails in place. And the simplest way to think about a guardrail is, is, is if you sell options to sell spreads or if you sell an option to own the underlying. So if you sell a call on something, hopefully you own the underlying because if you sell a call and you're wrong and you know you can get hurt very badly. And conversely, when you sell a put, then you better at least have cash set aside to buy that underlying You know, if, if that event happens. The idea of being long the market and selling puts is probably, well, it, it'll work fine if the market goes up, but if the market goes the other way, that's that's obviously the other side of the coin. There are so many perceptions that people have about derivatives and volatility strategies. And the one I always love wrestling with is Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway, right, who coined derivatives as weapons of financial mass destruction. And around that same time, around the financial crisis, he sold long-dated puts, I guess, I think ten, on the S&P. Ten-year puts on the S&P. Ten-year puts on the S&P, going into the financial crisis. Right. So he looked really bad for a while, but then he— he viewed it as an insurance business. As you're talking to your clients and, and prospects and institutions, how do you see people wrestling with a true understanding of the space as opposed to the perception that this is a financial weapon of mass destruction? We spend a lot of time on education. We really want to make sure people understand puts and calls and long and short and, and most specifically what each of our strategies you know is meant to do when it'll work well when it won't work well and most importantly you know how bad can it get you know and on the Warren Buffett example I recall when he did the trade and you know if if you're a natural buyer of the market on dips and you know that uh, there's this spread of implied over realized which is some edge uh, that's being handed potentially to you, and you know that skew is really rich for those downside puts, then someone like you know, Warren Buffett says, hey, I'm a buyer on dips anyway. If I don't get my dip, I'm going to make a lot from the premium. And then lo and behold, the financial crisis happened. And if I recall correctly, explaining these positions and the, the, the pretty big mark-to-market hit that he had to take you know, was a, a fairly predominant part of, of, the, of at least one of those letters, and probably only one letter, because it was only a problem in the fall of 08 and Q1 of 09, and then ever since. I guess what I would say is, is anybody who buys a stock, it's the same as being long a call and short a put, you know, at current level. And so if you decouple those things, um, you can be a naked put seller, and that's less risky than owning owning the stock. 
because the puts are out of the money. So you know, you've got a, like a buffer running head start before. In effect, you're saying, hey, I agree to buy the market on a dip. I'm not long now. And if the market you know, drops five or 10%, however far out of the money your, your puts are, you know, and you're getting paid as well. And you're getting paid over and over and over again. So now in the very short term, they might get nearly as risky as being long a stock because not only are you impacted by the drop in the market, but you're impacted by the spike in volatility. But the good news is, is you can then roll that put and now you're selling vol at a high as well as pushing your put. So I guess the point is, is the hearing the word, you know, short naked put sounds as scary as, as anything. And it, and what I would say is it's actually less scary than being long the market and nobody has a problem buying the S&P or buying stocks, et cetera. But boy, you talk about being short puts and you'd think, you know, you're playing with, you know, kerosene. So um, that, that's my take. You know, a couple of weeks ago, before the, the market choppiness that started in February, I had a conversation with Bill Spitz, who had been at Vanderbilt and Diversified Trust Company. And he had said the only area of the markets that he saw that looked cheap was volatility. If you shared that view, which I did, not too long ago, and it's a little, uh, a little different maybe today. How it's a good way for someone to go express that view to put capital to work and say, well, I think volatility is cheap. Therefore, I should do what? Lots of different things that one could do. If you're more of a professional trader, you know, you could buy straddles on the market. Yeah, well, let's assume you're not, and you're trying to figure out how do you capture that as an opportunity. Well, what I would say is if your view is that volatility is cheap, and and arguably when the VIX is around 11, 10, 9, it is cheap. You look at any, you know, it's a mean reverting asset, and you look at over time, um, that tends to be pretty pretty attractive level to, to buy. It's more, to me, it's more of a, it sort of screams stock replacement at that point. And so what I would say is volatility looks cheap. And and why does it look cheap? You know, it looks cheap because the market's just been going up and up and up and up and up. And who needs to buy puts when the market only goes up? And who needs to buy puts if Bernanke and Yellen are there with the big Fed put below? So if, if you think some of those things are less likely to continue and you're along the market, and now you can say, hey, I'm going to sell some of my long position and replace it with cheap calls. That way, if the market keeps running higher, I continue to make money. But if the market suddenly corrects like it did in starting in late January into you know, earlier this week, then you're limited to the premium that you spent, and so you're going to look like a hero. And not only did you limit the amount that you lose because the market collapsing, but your long vol and vol has just spiked. So that's one example. I think stock replacement is is really one. And the other would be if somebody is long and they have a zero basis and they, so they don't really want to sell and, and take a tax event, then you, know, you buy puts, um, for example. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle. Helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 
NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. And are there strategies, whether it's an asset management strategy, a hedge fund strategy, that sort of makes sense to say, okay, I own my equities and my board's comfortable with that. I'm not going to really change that up. I'm not going to get that cute. But I could give money to a manager. What are the strategies that managers tend to pursue in this space that would make sense to take advantage of a low volatility environment? One is a manager that uses covered calls. And even though, sort of to our earlier point, even if volatility isn't high, stock prices are high. And so adding some yield on top when the risk of a continued run is more muted and the potential of more of a decline is there can make sense. Or, you know, managers who will use stock replacement at times to maintain exposure, upward exposure, but, you know, a more cost-efficient way of limiting the downside risk. Or just more traditional, if you want to earn the equity drift over time, let's say, and, and you're happy, you know, making 4 to 8% and you'll forego the up 30 year to reduce the down 40 year, you know, then sort of a migrating collar around, around some equity exposure. So, and then the question is, you know, generally how I would want that to work would be finding someone who's really good at stock picking, you know, bottom up research, et cetera, and then use... S&P index options is more of the macro bet around that, you know, macro hedge around, uh, yeah. around that. One of the things I struggle with when I think about this is it's almost a different world than universe, right? So we can go out and try to pick our favorite stock picker. That's fine. The options trading world has, well, there's a different language. It's Greek. It's not English. It's how do you assess as, a, as an allocator if someone's good at, derivatives trading? I would start by looking at the team and to see what kind of, you know, experience and how much time they've been in the market, et cetera. Because if you're not good, you don't last. If you're not good, you don't advance. So I'd start with that for, for proof of knowledge, experience, depth, et cetera. I would also look at track record, clearly, you know, someone with a fancy back test who hasn't done it for very long versus someone who's done it for a long time through all types of markets, several different market cycles, bullish markets, bearish markets, low vol, high vol, spikes in vol. So I'd look at the team. I'd look at the track record. I'd look at the AUM growth. Allocators are very smart. And if capital continues to flow into a manager because of the other two points, that's those are all going to be pretty important things. And, and how long has the team been together? When you have a group that you don't have a lot of defections, you don't have a lot of people coming and going, and which is could be a sign of dissatisfaction or potential trouble ahead, if you will. I think all those things are, you know, are, are really important. One of the things I think is probably 
common for anyone to think about is the, the line about old, bold cowboys, right? There's old cowboys and there's bold cowboys, but there are no old, bold cowboys. And people do associate the derivatives market with cowboy-like behavior. Where have you seen firms get too bold? And how can someone who's looking at it say, okay, that is a red flag in the way they're executing the strategy, whatever the strategy is within the space? Usually when you see really outsized returns, and I'm not talking about slightly outperforming the benchmark, which is what we, what clearly you'd like, but you know strategies that you know there's not a good explanation, there's not a, a clear articulation of how this could blow up and why. But you know you hear certain things about strategies that are collecting nickels in front of a freight train. I would want to know that there are guardrails in place, and so it's more like picking up nickels in front of a tricycle, understanding that there's risk, but I'd rather skin my knee than, than get taken out. And certainly the spectacular blow-ups that we've heard over time are usually on that, on that side. They've been short, they've been levered, they don't have guardrails, and probably a little arrogant and not being able to you know, put in a stop loss and, and manage risk and thinking, you know, they're right and the rest of the world is wrong. And I think that interviewing, you know, looking at someone's background and interviewing them and their approach and their firm's approach, you can get a pretty good sense of, is this someone who's swinging? Is this Dave Kingman or is this Rod Carew or Tony Gwynn? And we are more Tony Gwynn, uh, Rod Carew. We're going to hit a lot of singles. We're going to hit for high average. Um, we're not going to strike out. But we also are not going to lead the league in home runs. If you were to do your due diligence in the space and call around, is the market information about traders relatively efficient? Meaning, if you made enough phone calls, is there a good sense in the community of, well, those guys tend to be a little bit out on the risk curve. Oh, no, those guys are fine. Is that information that you think a diligent allocator could gather? I think so. I think there, as you mentioned, there aren't a lot of option players out there, and so most of them have developed reputations, um, good or bad, and the bad ones tend not to last, and the good ones tend to last and grow. If you're assessing a manager in this space, how do you define alpha or excess return? And how, how would you understand if someone is, you know, quote-unquote, outperforming? Well, I mean, the easy answer is, does the strategy have a benchmark? If so, are you beating that benchmark? But what are the typical benchmarks for these types of strategies? Right. You know, so the CBOE has certain, come up with many new indexes, which are helpful benchmarks. So if you're looking at covered call strategies, for example, um, along the market with short calls against it, you know, you can look at BXM or BXY, for example. If you're managing iron condor strategies, they have the CNDR. If you're looking at put right strategies, they've got PUT. So that's a good place to start. And is, are those indexes done in sort of a systematic? Are they tradable? Is it like an ETF? They're not. They're indexes only. So they're not tradable. You can't put money into them. But there are managers who are trying to deliver that type of performance. So in some systematic kind of passive way. Right. So there, so the index, the CBOE instruments tend to be, you know, sort of monthly systematic, no deviation, variation, human interaction, et cetera, and no 
actual market. So it's sort of, it's sort of a you know, numeric thing, but it gives you a guide. And then when you view someone's track record versus that instrument, then you want to drill down, not just to did you outperform, but why did you outperform by how much, you know, is their style drift taking on more risk than we want? How volatile the returns? What are the drawdowns and recoveries versus, you know, things like any manager. But I think that's the, the, the critical point is really understanding, you know, again, the the risk management and mitigation side is the thing that really keeps everybody up at night. You mentioned the iron condor, which, you know, is almost the epitome of this insurance strategy, or the iron condor is you're selling insurance on the market and you're buying reinsurance. If you looked at either that index or managers that pursued it, is there over time a structural return from effectively selling insurance to the market? And and that strategy could epitomize it because you're not naked selling. Correct. We think there is, which is why we're in the business and have been successfully for you know ten plus years. There's lots of research that supports it. This thing we talked about earlier, this spread of implied over realized, and this risk transference mechanism is there. And so, just like there are insurance companies that make a lot of money by providing homeowners insurance, for example, property casualty insurance, but they're very good risk managers. You know, we think that that's the analogy, you know, here. We know there will be storms along the way. If there were never any storms, there would be no need for risk transference. And the key is, is how, you know, how do you weather those storms? How bad does it get? How quickly do you recover? And the one thing I'll say is like the insurance analogy is when there is a storm, it's not good for the policies you've already written, but it's very good for the policies you have, you're about to write. And if you are a sort of a systematic volatility seller with guardrails, like the iron condor strategy, then uh, those VIX spikes aren't good for the positions you've already written, but they're also decaying. And as you replace those structures with new structures, you know you benefit from higher vol leads to wider bands, uh, leads to more premium collected, and leads to fairly rapid recovery so you're back on track again. So it's sort of a you know two steps forward, one step back, and then onward and upward. In the equity world, we hear a lot about computer technology, big data, the quants, the big you know, renaissances uh, and uh, two sigmas of the world. Have you seen in the trading of the derivative markets the use of sort of computerization making certain trades more efficient or capturing inefficiencies that come out of market turmoil? Yes. I mean, I think that's everybody is looking at, you know, how can we make technology work better for us and for the strategy? It might be in signaling you know, trades, um, opportunities, warning lights. And I think that will continue to evolve and, and improve. We, uh, you know, we're big users of technology and quantitative metrics, but there's lots of opportunity for that to continue to be a differentiator. Well, I want to turn to the current environment because, you know, we've been planning to have this conversation for a little while, and maybe we would have ended it there if it was about a month ago, but a lot changed. What's going on? A lot. But what I, I guess I'd start with, you know, we've had a, a market, the S&P, which 
you know, hadn't had a 5% pullback in 400 trading day, you know, called two years, which is the longest streak in since the 50s. So you just had this market that has been very complacent. It only goes up. Every dip is to be bought. You've had central, you know, global central banks pumping in liquidity and and so as a result, you had, you know, VIX levels in the low teens or slightly below. Last year the VIX averaged about eleven, which was its lowest level, I think, since nineteen ninety. And um we all knew at some point we were due for at you know, a healthy correction. What I to me, which was was really extraordinary, was not that last year we would have an up twenty percent year, you know, in the ninth year of a of a bull market, but that January would come out of the chutes on top of all-time highs and be up seven and a half percent in the first, I don't know, eleven or twelve trading days. I mean that that was screaming, you know, this is too euphoric, way too much too fast. And lo and behold, uh, you know, we, we see the reversal in a hurry. And so when you look at a graph of the VIX over the last, you know, 20 plus years, it's about every 24 months or so that you see one of these spikes where the, you know, the VIX will get up to, you know, certainly 30 plus, if not, not touch 40 tends not to last very long, tends to, um, there will be a period of several weeks, if not a, you know, a month, where things will remain a little uh, more jittery both directions, but you know, they, they tend to settle down. And, and eventually, it's, you, you determine it's either it was a market phenomena or something bigger. In this case, the VIX spike that we saw on the you know, towards the close of the 5th and the opening on February 6th was exacerbated by these inverse VIX ETNs that a lot of people were sort of getting into because they looked really good for a long period of time. And then they, you know, they blew up. And when they blew up, it, it required a ton of VIX futures buying and it caused the volatility curve to become sort of unknown because as I mentioned earlier, the VIX is like a duration number. But when you're just buying the duration number back, how is it impacting the the whole curve? And and so it it, it was a very unusual meaning supply and demand for the instrument as opposed to the, the economic yeah, driver underneath. You know, it. the the VIX is derived from the implied vol of index options on the S P across the full range of strikes and and it's 30 days out, so it's interpolated between the, the front month and the second month. And so all of a sudden, that just got, you know, got a little funky. It, it, it was corrected very quickly, but I think that obviously scared a lot of people. And it, you know, a billion and a half dollars looks like it kind of went away. So let's dive in a little yeah. bit to what th- that actual instrument. And also curious if there are other sort of landmines waiting to happen. So what was that instrument, that, that XIV, that, that blew up? Yeah, we don't trade any VIX instruments. We only trade options on the S&P 500. Um, and so for us, the VIX is a reference. It's a beacon. It's it's sort of a, you know, a general measure, but it's not something that, that we trade or have a lot of it. And so there is a trade there that, you know, again, looked really good until it didn't related to the, the roll down. But the, the, these things require sort of a daily rebalance. And, and they can look very good you know, as a short term, as a, as a relatively easy 
way to put on a short-term, I don't want to say bet, but I guess bet or trade. Over long periods of time, you, you, you might have the right view and think you expressed it the right way and, and find out that you actually lost money even though you think you did everything right. So, again, we, this is not our space. And unfortunately, it can sometimes taint a bigger pool than those who are just using S&P 500 index options as the instruments. There are a lot of conspiracy theories floating around about quants as impacting volatility, certainly these types of ETFs, ETNs, and different instruments. What do you hear and what do you believe? Yeah, I don't hear a lot only because, again, we don't delve into that space. What do I believe? You know, I, I believe that Often stories are written to get clicks and eyeballs, and so the more sensational, the better to stir things up. Not to say that there isn't a story there and, and some truth there, but that they often are. They aren't a balanced approach. It's not a. It's not a point counterpoint. It's sort of a hey, this looks like something we can go in and make look really bad. So I believe there's stuff there. I don't know that it's quite as extensive as some would lead you to believe. And that stuff there is that, you know, if you look at last year when volatility was just so low and the market was creeping higher and compare it to your long history in these markets, is that just a, for you, it's a feel that, boy, something doesn't feel right. Yeah, I think it's fair. Yeah. When you see, you know, an instrument that most people who are in it don't understand and you see it attracting capital and it's, it's usually a recipe for heartache at some point. What's next on the frontier in terms of new strategies for this use of derivatives for sophisticated traders and for allocators? Yeah, I mean, I think the growth in volatility-related instruments will continue because as people understand how they can be used properly, as we mentioned earlier, like the pharmaceutical, you know, as, as the drugs get better and the doctors get better and the research gets better, we'll continue to see growth. And I, and I see that similar thing happening in the volatility space. So the original three are still, you know, adding yield and how do you do that most efficiently, most effectively, you know, reducing risk and how do you do that most efficiently, most effectively. Obviously, buying puts is the, is the norm, but maybe there's more stock replacement that's built into that as an alternative. But I know, again, that will be between experience and technology and research, et cetera. I see that continuing to evolve. And then when you get to the leverage side, whether it's leverage or it's synthetic replacement, you know, one of the things we're excited about is is sort of an alternative to being long the market is using volatility instruments to more efficiently get that beta. All right. And the idea of that I mentioned earlier, when you're long the market, you're effectively long a call and short a put. And so half of your delta, let's say, comes from the long call side and half comes from the short put side. Well, let's be more thoughtful about that. And let's say, and I mentioned earlier on the skew thing, you know, if the VIX is at 20 and if calls are 15 and puts are at 25, well, let's buy calls cheap and let's sell puts rich. That sounds like we're being handed a little bit of you know of an opportunity, and when we sell puts, you know let's let's put on a spread so that we have a little bit of a guardrail in place, so that you know when you do have that really outsized event, you're hurt less. 
And let's, you know, when we do sell options, let's stay shorter dated to take advantage of time decay. And when we buy options, let's buy a little longer dated uh, so that we're not hurt by that theta bleed. And then let's add another element and say, hey, let's rebalance these things more on a, on a vol regime spectrum so that when vol is sort of normal, I'd say, call it 20 is its long-term average, call it 16 to 24, one standard deviation kind of move. Within that, you know, you're sort of, no X. You've got half on the calls, half your deltas from long calls, half from the short put spread side. But as vol gets richer, you want to sell more and get more of your delta from the short put spread side. By the way, the market's collapsed and we're okay selling some more put spreads, um, lower strikes and, and selling more vol when vol's really high. And we'll Buy less calls in that instance, and um, you know, and rebalance that way. And conversely, when vol gets cheap, like it did for much of last year, we'll migrate towards a stock replacement strategy. We'll sell fewer put spreads um, in that environment, and we'll get our longs from long calls. So it's sort of a natural. You know, we want to stack the deck in our favor as many ways as possible. Sell rich vol, buy cheap vol. Sell spreads, buy unlimited, and. Um, Try to be long Vega, but also earning Theta at the same time, and and just be more opportunistic and and take what what's being handed to us, all in the name of beating the S and P over time, but in a completely different way. Rick, let's turn to a few closing questions. Oh, good. What was your favorite sports moment, either as a participant or a fan, or both? This could be a segment all on its own. <laughs> um, as a big sports fan, uh, mentioned earlier that I went to Michigan, so my parents hadn't missed a home game in 62 years until this last year when my mom sadly passed, but my dad kept the tradition on. 62 years. 62 years. Oh, my gosh. Um, so big part of That's us. That's fo- so football? Home football games? Home game football right? games, yeah. yeah. Um, so what I would say is any Michigan football victory over Ohio State, Michigan State, or Notre Dame is pretty special. Was there one in particular that stands out? From Ohio State, I guess the most recent win, which sadly is – several years ago I had my whole family there and that just it was such a fun game it was an exciting game and to have them all there and celebrate you know, was, was a big deal the Michigan versus Notre Dame under the lights game which was the first ever night game at Michigan it was the largest when was that game? this was probably 2011 10 11 it was uh Brady Hoke's first year so I guess seven years ago so call it 2011 largest crowd to ever see game um, we were down most most of the game, and in the final minute, there were three touchdowns scored. Michigan went up with a minute left. Notre Dame came down and scored with you know 30 seconds left, and then Michigan drove 80 yards in 30 seconds to win it, and then it was bedlam. The other highlights, I would say, was when the Detroit Tigers won the World Series in 84. My dad and I were there. He, I was in college at the time. He drove down. Picked me up. We went to the game, and it was about as exciting. Uh, and, and be able to share it with with my dad was was incredible. When Michigan won the national championship in '89, I was in business school, and half of my section we were all at the the Alston Sports Depot, and um, that <laughs> that was a, a great shared experience. And then when Michigan won the national championship in football in '97, they beat Washington State in the Rose Bowl. And there's a theme. I had my daughter theme. on my chest. Oh wow! Uh, she had just been born. And so that made it made it really special. As a participant, well, it's more about my kids, uh, who are much better athletes than the old man. But when my daughter's New Canaan High School um, lacrosse team won the state championship, um, and she's 
you know, a defender on that team. That was very exciting. And then my son plays basketball for St. Luke's last year. They won the New England's and he hit a big three to, to help turn the tide. And that was exciting. And the last one I'll mention was my dad and I playing in his his member guest and we won and we won the tournament and, he he was so excited because he's been in about 50 <laughs> member guests and never won. And we just happened to the moon, the stars, and the tides aligned. And, and seeing him be that happy was, was really special. That's great. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? My parents are great people. I think they never said it, but they did it every day. And it, and it was just be nice. It's so easy. It's free. And treating people with respect whether it's a colleague or it's a family member it's a friend or it's the waiter it's the bus driver be nice and the world would be a lot better place if 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 more people had that approach and they were big readers and and that to this day treasure that as well so yeah so to that and what information do you read so information could be book and blogs whatever it is that you get a lot out of that other people might not know about Sure. Um, the things everybody knows about, clearly, you know, whether it's the Times, the Journal, you know, Barron's, we get some pretty interesting pieces from certain banks and certain boutique research providers. And I value reading those each day. Is there um, one that stands out? Jared Dillian's Daily Dirt Nap is it's a little salty and edgy, but, you know, there's a lot of good information in that, just as one example. And there are several others. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life? Understanding that it's okay to make a mistake, that it's okay to fail. No, no one wants to make a mistake. No one wants to fail. But those are the things that do make you stronger. They make you better. And uh, it's okay. What's more important than making the mistake is how you respond and react to it. All right. One last one. It's your waning days. You are... In your seat three hours before a big blues, big game against Ohio State, thinking about your life, what advice would you give yourself today? Work hard, but play hard. Uh, life is short, and you got to enjoy it along the way. And in addition to Michigan football, you know, nothing's more important than family and friends, and you know, treasure them. Rick, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Ted. Enjoyed it. Hey, before you take off, I've started sending out a monthly email that shares a small selection of what caught my eye over the month. I get a lot of emails like this, and I'm sure you do too, so I'm only going to send no more than a handful of the very best things that caught my eye. If you'd like to receive that email, hop on my website at capitalallocatorspodcast.com and join the mailing list. 